Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. of our series uh, titled Easter Eggs. And we're looking at traces of Jesus across time. We're specifically instances in the Old Testament where we see things prophesied or pointing to or promising about Jesus in the future. Um, this week, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 53, but it's going to be a minute before we get there. But if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. I want to start out talking about uh, John Cavanaugh. Now, he's no relation that I know of to Brett Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court Justice, okay? He's a famous ethicist, and he got to this breaking point in his life where he was like a crossroads, trying to figure out what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. And so one of the things he decided to do kind of on this personal journey was to go to Calcutta and meet with and work with Mother Teresa. That was his goal. He, he looked at her life and it seemed like she made plenty of hard decisions because she always had this clarity for what she wanted to do. And so that's what he was going to do. He was going to go work with her, talk to her, and, and try to gain insight on what he's supposed to do with the rest of his life. He's, he was wrestling with his future. So he got to Calcutta and he worked in the, the house for the dying for three months, trying to figure out what he was supposed to do, wrestling with this future, wrestling. And then he got the opportunity to finally meet with and speak with Mother Teresa. So he uh, went to her and he asked her if she would pray for him. Of course, Mother Teresa, being the saint that she is, said yes. All right? Yes, I'll pray for you. She asked him, how would you like me to pray for you? And his response was clarity. Can you pray that I would have clarity? Wrestling with what he wanted to do with his future, wrestling with what was before him, and he wanted to know what God wanted for him. Mother Teresa looked him dead in the eye and said no. I'm like, wait a minute. She said, no, I will not pray that you have clarity. He, like all of us, was taken back. Like, I just asked this lady to pray for me. She said yes. When I gave her the subject, she refused to pray for that. There's all kinds of like, wait a minute, what's up? And of course, he asked her. He was like, okay, well, why will you not pray for that? And her response was really profound. She said, clarity is the last thing that you are clinging to and must let go of. And he 
fired back. But you seem to have clarity in everything that you do. And her response was laughter. She literally laughed and said, I have never had clarity. What I have always had is trust. So I will pray that you trust God. Trust. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been at a place or in a situation where your trust has been tested? Maybe, maybe it's with a spouse or with kids or a boss or coworker where your trust has been pushed to the boundary. What about with God? Have you ever wrestled with trusting God? You're back up against the wall. Options are limited. Your outlook is bleak. You do not know what the outcome is going to be. You're not sure what to do, but yet you are called to trust him. Have you ever struggled with relying completely on God in a given situation? Today, we look at Jesus in Isaiah 53. But before we get there, we have to have some context because the context of the book of Isaiah leans heavily on this idea of trust. Israel ends up in exile because she has two kings that lead her and they both wrestle with this idea of trust. And ultimately, they both choose to trust anything but God. See, Israel, little history lesson, stay with me. Okay, this is, if you're a Christian, this is your history, so it's important that you know this too. Israel had had a civil war. All right. It had split into two. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The line of David, which we know Jesus comes from, the promised Messiah coming from the line of David was the southern kingdom. But the northern kingdom had partnered with another country and was coming in to attack the southern kingdom. So King Ahaz, who is currently leading the southern kingdom, is a terrible king. In no way, shape, or form has he ever leaned on, trusted, or followed the will of God. And so for, because of that, he's facing this situation where he's been called as Israel to trust in God, partner with God, lean in with God as whenever trouble arises. They are literally in the promised land. God has come through and that's where they are at. But the promised land is being threatened and he has the choice to trust God to come through, to be his strength, to be his partner, or to partner with a neighboring kingdom. He said, the, the guys up north are coming to attack us. They have more power. They have more strength. They have more of an army. We need more resources. Is he going to trust God or trust the power and the kingdoms of this world? He's never trusted God. Of course, he partners with another kingdom. And of course, God removes his hand of protection. Israel faces the discipline of their decisions. And soon the partner kingdom, partnering kingdom, they fall. And shortly after, Israel falls. Now, if you look at Israel's history, there's kind of this cycle all throughout history where Israel will, will trust in God, follow his statutes, be his covenant partner, and then they begin to neglect God. And because of that, God lifts his hands and they fall into exile or they fall into turmoil. And then God provides another king or a prophet or somebody or a judge to step up and lead them out of that back into triumph. So God raises up another leader, Hezekiah, another king. This time, if you read the beginning of Isaiah, He's held in contrast to Ahaz, and he is considered the almost good king. And I say almost because he trusts God. He's faced with another similar situation where he can partner with Egypt or he can trust God. And in that moment, he chooses to trust God. 
And because of that, Israel is restored. It's back in the promised land. Things are going how they want it to go. Things are going good. But then the opportunity to partner with Babylon arises. And when Hezekiah sees Babylon, there's a gleam in his eye, a chance for more power, a chance for more wealth, a chance for more pleasure. He's been called to partner and trust in God for all of those things, but instead he partners with Babylon. And Isaiah sees this happening, and that's when we have the prophecies of Isaiah of Israel falling and then a future hope. They had this chance to trust and partner with God, but instead they chose the kingdoms of this world and the situations that resulted were dire. And it's easy to look at them. It's easy to look at Israel and think, they've, God brought them out of Egypt. He's provided miracle after miracle. He's raised them up after they've been crushed for not following him. How could they do that? But if we're honest with ourselves, we're not really any different than Israel. So often we are, get to a place with our backs against the wall where we can trust and partner with God or we can lean on our own strength, our own understanding and try to accomplish our own will by our own power. I read an article um, a couple weeks ago on the, the loneliness of our current culture. Generation Z, which is the one after me, and millennials. There's kind of this pocket of the the last part of millennials and the first part of Gen Z that they've studied and is actually the loneliest generation to ever live. And whether it's correlation or causation, they couldn't be sure, but they highlighted the fact that it's also the transient, most transient generation. People can work from anywhere, because of, virtual, because of the virtual reality that we live in. People can work wherever they want, and people's main goal is job security. So what the, these two, this, the, this generation gap is doing is they are pursuing a career above all else. They're uprooting from whatever community they're in, and they're moving from job from city to city, chasing job after job, or going to somewhere where they think they would be more comfortable and they don't like it there, and they're not stuck there, so they get up and they move somewhere. For all these different reasons, there's no roots being planted And because of that, loneliness is at a higher rate than it's ever been before. I'm not saying that chasing a job is bad. I'm not saying that moving for a career is bad. I'm saying that whenever it comes to chasing job security, we got to think about the cost. And it's not just a job. It can be anything. It could be anything that you feel like you have to achieve or you have to get so that you could be comfortable on your own. If God's not in it, eventually it will end in exile. Maybe you have to take a lesser paying job to have a better health. Maybe... Maybe it's not career related. Maybe you uh, have been in a group of people where you change who you are. You don't, you're not the real you because you want to be accepted by those that are around you. We all have, maybe it's, maybe it's generosity. Maybe God's called you to give up a resource, time or money or energy, but that resource you know is limited and you don't want to give up that resource because of what it might cost you. There are times where God calls us to live out of trust and obedience and knowing that he is our strength, he is our partner, he is the one that we are to trust. And But when we don't, when we act in our own strength, 
just like Israel, just like those kings, exile follows. If we trust anything but God, exile follows. If you read Isaiah 39, it leaves us with very little hope. We've, been, we've talked about how the southern kingdom was where the line of David was going to produce the Messiah. It was through the line of David that God was going to save the world. You read Isaiah 39, very, very little hope. The situation is bleak. Exile is there. We have been cast out. Some of the context, you got to think that this, this is a theocracy. Okay, so they think that their government, the leader of their government is God. He is the one that has established their kingdom. And the, their entire national structure is around the fact that God is their leader. He appoints prophets and judges and kings, depending on which chapter of the Old Testament you're in. But God is the one, the, the leader. In Isaiah 39, God is no longer there. This event, is, it's fulfilled centuries of prophetic warnings, hundreds of years of tradition. Everything is lost. They thought what was ordained by God, and now it has come crashing down. Years of tradition, culture, history destroyed. All has been wiped away. It has left them absolutely devastated. Jerusalem has fallen. It has been systematically plundered. Everything they had has been taken. They have been methodically enslaved by a more powerful nation that they thought was going to give them more power. Now it holds power over them. Every item that they had gathered and amassed, everything in their storehouses has been removed. They have nothing left. They've lost their culture. They've lost their identity. They've lost their land. They've lost their wealth. And many have lost their family. It costs them everything. Exile is utter darkness. They have lost everything they have. If you've ever tried to do life on your own and it's backfired, you know a little bit about what they've experienced. Maybe not that extreme. I think about a time in the planting of this church. I started it and I did all this training. I had no idea what I was doing, but I saw other leaders who had big churches that they had managed to plant and make happen. And so what I did is I decided I was going to imitate them. I was going to act like them. I was going to try to have their personality traits. I was going to try to plant a church, you know, one that Satan is attempting to fight against without God, but on my own strength. As you can guess, it backfired. I put my identity in Revive. And when Revive didn't explode and grow like I thought it was going to, my worth hit the floor. Because I I was ashamed. Yeah, I'm a pastor. Yeah, I started a church. Yeah, I want to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, how's it going? Not great. The church was out of money. My family was out of money. Back against the wall. I had lost my identity trying to be someone I wasn't, and it is the darkest point in my life. The darkest thoughts I've ever had. I can remember driving down the road and going in between uh, the, the, if you've been been on exit 88 on Monroe, there's a gas station, McDonald's on one side, BP and Dunkin' Donuts on the other. And I can remember passing, going in between those two buildings and seeing a semi coming up the road, up the hill, and think, you know, I could just take this truck cross the line, and no one would ever know that I did it on purpose. 
the darkest thoughts that I have ever had, trying to do life on my own, trusting no one and not trusting God. And it broke me. It absolutely broke me. And that's the thing about exile. It is dark. It is hard. And it is because of sin. You may feel the weight of exile and what comes with it. It's suffering. It's hardship. It's pain. It's feeling like you've been defeated and lost. The old way of life is ruined. Exile was never part of the design, but we saw it last week when when Adam and Eve were exiled out of the garden. You see it over and over again. Sin causes us to be cast out of God's presence, but it doesn't stay that way. Because while trusting anything other than God brings exile, out of exile comes hope. While Isaiah 39 is bleak, the outcome is unknown. Israel has made their bed and now they're forced to lay in it. They've lost everything they've ever known. Comes forward Isaiah 40, which sings a completely different tune. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. Her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Israel sitting in exile, knowing all of this pain because of their sin, is told that they will be redeemed. They will be brought back. They will be delivered out of exile and back into the promised land. That's the same promise that we have. Sin causes exile, but we don't stay there because of a suffering servant, which we'll get to in a minute. We are brought out of exile. We are brought back into God. You are redeemed. You are brought back. You are delivered out of exile. We can be back in the presence of of God because of what is to come. Isaiah 52, 9 through 10 says, your God reigns as king. God will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation for our, of our God. I mean, come on. He's going to bear the arm. Do you know what that, like, have you ever, you can do this with Addie Lee afterwards. She loves to ask to see her muscles, right? She'll pull up her sleeve and show her bare arm. That's what it's talking about. God shows his strength. He's showing his power by delivering his people out of exile. Are you oppressed? Are you beat down? Are you discouraged? Are you lost? Are you desperate? God is coming through. That's what Isaiah is proclaiming. You are not left alone. He is laying bare his arm showing his strength to deliver you. That's the hope that comes out of exile, that brings us back. But it's not the hope we expected. Anybody seen The Dark Knight, right? He's talking about Batman, right? He's, he's not the hero they deserved, but the hero they needed, right? That's similar situation, right? It's not the hope we expected, but it's the hope that we needed. We've made it to Isaiah 53, This is verses two and three. It says, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. I want to read that. NIV, I like it better. I got to bring a little bit closer. Isaiah 2, he grew up like them before a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and similar and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. They expected a king of human standard. They looked to be restored. When they read about the mighty arm of God being laid bare, they thought a warrior was coming through, was going to wipe out Babylon, eventually wipe out the Romans, and they were going to be back on top by human standards. That's what they were looking for. We get to Isaiah 53, which is the poem of the suffering servant. The hope they thought was going to be a mighty human power was actually lowly, cast out, overlooked, not what they expected. Has anybody seen the, the Last Dance, the documentary on Michael Jordan? Right, incredible documentary. If you like sports, I'm not even a huge basketball fan, but watch it. It's awesome, right? But uh, along with that documentary came another piece by ESPN written by Rick Riley. And this is what Rick Riley says. It says, the price of greatness is more than you want to pay. The world's most legendary athletes are usually the ones most wildly out of balance. Michael Jordan had to crush you, whether you were an opponent or a teammate. He Riley said to enjoy your heroes, but don't envy them. Isn't it interesting that many of our athletic and other heroes have this competitive nature that calls them to dominate to achieve victory? Over and over again, we read about athletes in the news who have abused a child or a girlfriend or a spouse because their whole the whole way that they were able to make it in this athletic competition was to dominate and overpower anybody that came against them. And that mentality bled over into their personal life. And they're unable to, to, to differentiate when they have a problem. The way they solve that problem is by dominating it. And so many of our heroes in our culture achieve success by dominating others. Jesus is the exact opposite. He obtained victory by sacrificing his life. This coming servant that Isaiah talks about is an absolute nobody. There's nothing beautiful or majestic about him. In fact, some would even call him a Debbie Downer. Anybody remember that skit from SNL, right? They had the lady who was a Debbie Downer and, and make this music and nobody wanted to be around her because she was negative all the time. I can remember it because everybody broke character one time and like you see Jimmy Fallon, some people just absolutely losing it in this skit. It's not that kind of Debbie Downer. Okay, Jesus, people didn't want to be around Jesus not because he was negative, but because he suffered so much. Over and over and over again, life around him would crumble. He was, he was surrounded by sorrow and rejection and illness. So much affliction that people would dismiss him as hopeless and worthless. They, the Israelites, God's people, were looking for a mighty warrior to dominate the competition. Instead, God sent a suffering servant who was going to lay down his life and give it all to overcome death and darkness. It's not the hope they were expecting, but it was the hope they needed. The cross was not this beautiful sight. I think sometimes we get lost in the fact that the, the promise that came with that, the freedom and life that came when Jesus died on the cross, it's because it's who we are, because he was able to defeat death, because he paid that penalty. We don't have to. And that is this beautiful picture of victory and triumph. And we get that. And so when we think about the cross, a lot of times it can be mystified in our mind, but the cross was not 
beautiful. It was horrible. It was grotesque. He was pierced. They literally took nails and drove them through his hands and through his feet. He was crushed. He was whipped. He was beaten. He had a crown of thorns pushed down into his head. In fact, in fact the way he, would, he died was not by bleeding out or anything. His lungs were crushed by his body weight. When you're hanging on a cross, they would have to pick themselves up to breathe. And eventually their strength would get out and their own body weight would crush their lungs and they would suffocate to death. Jesus, we're told, was stabbed in the side. He felt that crushing weight. The cross was designed as a humiliating death penalty so that people would not raise up an army against the kingdom. It was humiliating. Jesus was pierced and he was crushed. That's what happened on the cross. And then we read Isaiah 53. Now keep in mind, this is written 700 years, more than 700 years before Jesus is even born. The cross has not even been thought of yet. But this is what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 43, verses 4 through 5. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The cross wasn't even a thing, but the words that that Isaiah wrote in Hebrew translated perfectly to pierced, crushed, wounds that healed us. Tell me the Bible isn't incredible. That was a prophecy that Isaiah gave. And in verse 4, we see this suffering servant that we overlooked in verses 1, 2, and 3. And we see verse 4 in a different light. We thought he was getting what he deserved, but what we learn is that that servant is suffering for our sins. He is wounded for my sin. He was crushed so that I could be healed. He became my scapegoat. He became our sacrifice. He became our sin bearer. Matthew Henry's commentary puts it like this. Our sins were the thorns in Christ's head, the nails in his feet, the nails in his hands, the spear in his side. He was delivered to death for our offenses. Offenses By his suffering, he has purchased for us the spirit and the grace of God. It was my sin that tore the flesh of Christ. It was my decision to elevate myself to God. It was my decision to put my trust in the powers that I could see and understand rather than trusting God, the God of the cosmos. It was those decisions that placed me in exile. And it was King Jesus that stepped out of heaven and put on the same flesh as me, that experienced the same temptation and pain and brokenness of this world. And it was that suffering servant that laid down his life and was pierced and crushed for my sins. Jesus was broken so that I could be mended. Jesus was pierced so that I could be whole. He was wounded so that I could be healed. It's not the hope that we expected, but it was the hope that we needed. Tim Mackey says this, This we discover is how God would overcome the horrific evil that duped humanity into thinking they are God. This is how God will become the victor over human evil. God would send a son of Eve to conquer evil by allowing evil to conquer him, then overcoming its power of death by his love and eternal life. 
How does God rescue? How does God crush the serpent that we talked about last week? How does God overcome evil that led humans into choosing themselves as God? He shows what being God really means. Laying down your life as the suffering servant. He conquered evil by allowing evil to conquer him. Then he overcame that power of death by his own power of love love, and eternal life. God wins. Hope wins. Hope is restored out of exile. We know that this prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. We no longer have to operate out of exile because Jesus has died for our sins. Hope is restored. Remember, Isaiah wrote this passage before the Israelites had even gone into exile yet. Yes, they went into the pain. Yes, they had the pain, but they didn't go in empty-handed. They had the promise of their deliverance before they ever entered exile. In the darkest of days, God's promise still reigns. Do you ever wonder if you'll be plagued by sin your entire life? Do you ever wonder if you'll be able to follow Christ in obedience, resisting the temptation of habit or issue in your life? Jesus's atonement provides your healing. You may be without strength. You may be without peace. You may be without joy, but you are not without hope. Hope restores, it restores joy, it restores peace, it restores strength. Jesus is the suffering servant. Through his innocent suffering and death will come a great forgiveness and a mighty resurrection. This terrible death endured endured means life and victory for all. (coughs) Will you trust him? Will you follow him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you gave it all.